Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to Wikipedia. It's Mickey here, and in this 67th episode, I get to talk to my mate, Professor Grant Schofield, again. Those of you who have been with me from the start or who have been picking up as you go along, Professor Grant Schofield was our very first guest, and he comes back on to share his thoughts on vaccine mandates and the cognitive dissonance seen at policy level that he feels is dividing New Zealanders. As a professor of public health, Grant doesn't shy away from speaking up on topics that he feels really strongly about and how these impact us as individuals and more as a collective society. So we do talk about this and the synergies there are between this and nutrition, where he is perhaps better known for as the co-author of the successful What the Fat book series and of Precure, a health and nutrition coach education platform. So it's fair to say that Grant speaks up and is a little bit of a disruptor, but I feel he is able to sort of grasp an understanding of these topics at a much deeper level than a lot of people can, given his education background and just the fact that he is a brainiac. And to have his insights, I have found it super helpful over the last couple of years. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Grant, he is a professor of public health at Auckland University of Technology and the director of the Human Performance Centre there, which is located on the Millennium Campus in Auckland, New Zealand. So his research and teaching interests are in well-being and chronic disease prevention, especially reducing the risk and eventual mortality and morbidity from obesity, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. He lives by the motto, be the best you can be, and has a strong commitment to peak performance in which he also does consulting work in. And those of you who have listened to the very first episode of Wikipedia would also know that he is a keen athlete and he also coaches in the triathlon space as well. Now I've put links to everything related to Grant with regards to where you can find him, his blog, plus the blog that we discuss in our interview and the Human Potential Centre and of course Precure are all in the show notes. Before we move on to the interview though, if you can take a moment and you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. That just helps increase the awareness of Wikipedia to a wider audience so more people can enjoy the conversations that I have with some of these awesome experts. And to go that extra mile, you could also sign up to the recipe access portal over on mickeywillardin.com. So for 12 bucks a month, you get access to my recipe library, which has over 800 recipes updated very regularly. I put four salad recipes up on there the other day, actually. You get a weekly email from me, you get access to our member-only Facebook group, and importantly, you do get the opportunity to touch base with me through our online messaging platform, where we can sort of figure out your best individual nutrition approach moving forward via our messaging system as well. You get to pick my brain essentially. So if that is of value to you, head over to mickeywillardin.com, sign up to the recipe access portal. All right, team. Please enjoy this conversation that I have with Professor Grant Schofield. Yeah, lovely. Uh, Professor Schofield, I almost called you Schofield. <laughs> it's a bit strange. <laughs> I've been called much worse than that, you know, as you know. <laughs> How are you doing, Grant? Good, yourself? Good, good, thank you. Um, this is actually your second opportunity to come on to Wikipedia and have a conversation. Well, yeah, my honour to be on Wikipedia, and it, I, I'm still loving the brand. But it, it just sounds so cool. Thank you. I'm hoping that the brand will carry me through many years, despite the quality of guests that I end up attracting. <laughs> 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 no, just jokes. Hey, uh, so you were my inaugural podcast interview, actually, and... Uh, you know, back in the day, I was doing this up in my room with um, AirPods in, and of course we were commenting on, I encouraged you to compliment me on my new updated setup, so I feel qu quite the pro. You do, you look like the pro, and weirdly I'm still wearing AirPods. Well, yeah. Later. 
well, there's a lot that hasn't moved on, actually, and um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to sort of get back on the podcast and have a conversation with you. So obviously I'll put links to the things that we discuss in the show notes, but Grant, one of your sort of greatest characteristics and things which people like me look up to you sort of for is that you don't shy away from hard conversations. You don't shy away from big topics, despite the potential sort of blowback that you might receive from that. So um, obviously a perfect example of this is that you really moved our understanding as, you know, a profession, but also mainstream as well with your books and stuff like that as to how to view nutrition and how what we understood about nutrition wasn't potentially necessarily what um, sort of a good diet would be made up of. Yeah, it's that mismatch, isn't it, between science and practice and reality? Yeah, science and reality, absolutely. And of course, as I said, you were the first guest on my podcast and we, we spoke briefly in and around the pandemic then back in September, I think 2020, because I, as I un- remember, I believe we were in maybe a level three lockdown at the time when we connected. And uh, now as we go back into alert level red, um, which brings with it some restrictions uh, and more restrictions necessarily than potentially what is required, you're coming back on because you've had some thoughts in and around what's going on in society and how this, you know, the potential fallout of this. So um, thanks for taking time to talk to me today, basically. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And thanks for having me back. It's like, I don't know if I was the first guest because you couldn't find anyone better um, <laughs> or I'm actually honoured. So I don't know, either or. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grant. So um, can you just give us a little bit of context as to your blog post, your opinion, which actually I really loved the way you couched it as an opinion piece, as, as a large part of it, and you framed it as, hey, look, this is opinion and science, and you really delineated what was what. Um, what sort of uh, encouraged the genesis of this? Um, well, I'll give you a few provisos and a bit of background and tell you how I keep going down these uh, journeys. Uh, first of all, if we are going to talk about the COVID pandemic or endemic, as I'd probably call it now. Uh, and I, I mean, everyone's got an opinion. I think everyone should have an opinion. Uh, it's the first thing I've been thinking. Um, it's not an easy topic to engage in for your own well-being. It's sort of essential for your well-being, but it's sort of a hormetic process, I guess, you've got to go through because it does stress you out mm. as you try and make sense of all sides and 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 there's there's quite polarized sides right so you can listen to joe rogan and with mcculloch and malone and then i've done all that and there's good points there and there's holes there and you can listen to the government and depending on what your country and your ministry of health and here in new zealand or the cdc or whatever in the us and and there's they've got some things right as well but there's also a lot of holes and then there's a whole bunch of opinions in between and so that sort of scientific debate um, as we keep learning, you should expect we didn't know anything about this at the start of uh, 2020, and um, at the start of 2022, we know more, but things keep rapidly changing. Um, we just have data coming out all the time. But the process of science um, and actually politics are pretty intertwined, and I really only feel like I've got something to say on this because of my previous experience in nutrition, and I think you, you talked about that earlier, right? So. Uh, and I gave a TED talk on this at one stage, actually, around um, the failure of the incumbent scientists and policymakers uh, to move in nutrition when mm. new evidence came out that you know perhaps it was actually uh, sugar and starch, um, especially the ability to sort of maintain the homeostasis around blood sugar uh, and blood insulin that seemed to be really critical uh, in maintaining uh, metabolic health, uh, and and also that one of the perverse effects of promoting a low-fat food revolution is that you ended up with nutrient-poor foods. So a lot of the micronutrients and the nutrient density that we thought to be important was somehow missing, and not only missing, now endorsed with policy. And I'd imagine that that to be a fairly straightforward sort of debate because the science was uh, still emerging, but but um, starting to be more convincing. And you know, we've done our own trials. Uh, you've been involved in some of these. Uh, you know, with the Defence Force and other places, Cliff Harvey's work, um, showing similar results. I felt we had something to say about that, but 
and I, and I felt that we should be taken seriously, but rather than being taken seriously at all, the incumbent science and public health practitioners doubled down on their own hypothesis. And you start to explore that, and I've been thinking about that in, in terms of thinking traps and cognitive biases, and that's that 1950s and 60s psychologist who's still going, Leon Festinger, had come up with that idea of cognitive dif- dissonance, mm. which is around our own frailties, right? So you, And we do it all the time. Like you pay... You pay 200 bucks for your pink concert ticket, you go, it's relatively shit, but you know who would be stupid enough to spend 200 bucks for a night out that wasn't much fun? So you, you ratchet up your experience to match your effort. Mm. Um, you don't change your mind. I didn't go to the pink concert, you might have. No. Uh, uh, but my wife went and she paid 200 bucks and she said it was fun. But you know, it's hard to tell whether it actually was um, or she just changed her um, attitude following her behavior. Yeah. And so you see the same in science. We, we get something wrong, we find it incredibly hard to change our own mind because that, that defeats our own ego to say, oh, I was wrong. I got this wrong. Jeez, you know, I've, my, whole, whoops, my whole last 30 years is based on this whole diet heart hypothesis and that doesn't really work out anymore. So rather than do that, we tend to double down, mm. um, demonize the people who, who, are, who are saying something different and just carry on from there without changing our minds. And that's, been, that's just been a, a common theme in science. You know, uh, the physicists were saying this back in the, with around Max Planck and Heisenberg's days, that science evolves one funeral at a time. Mm-hmm. And there's even been studies on this showing breakthroughs in a field tend to happen after pe- previous people with breakthroughs actually die mm. um, or retire from the discipline, such as their uh, inability to change their mind, even though they were the ones who challenged the previous generation's mind. So we all watch out for that. Um, but I hadn't realized there's actually a, an interesting parallel philosophy called the vision of the anointed, Mm. which is this guy, Thomas Sowell, who's a, in the 1970s as a sort of political commentator. And it, it's just cognitive dis- dissonance, but for countries and politicians. And it goes something like this, and I think people are well used to this. The, there's a political policy. Um, it was just not a great idea to start with, um, or it might have been, but it just doesn't work out in practice. Uh, rather than abandoning that policy and go, gosh, I was wrong, um, the tendency is to double down on that policy and say, well, well we just needed to try harder and do it bigger and harder. Mm. And a, a great example was nutrition, right? It's like people ate margarine and whatnot. They lowered their LDL cholesterol and we saw no effects. And the answer to that is, well, they just didn't lower the cholesterol enough. We need to go harder with canola oil and margarine and polyunsaturated fats, and that's all there is to it. We were right all along, of course. Um, but if you take those combination of things uh, and apply that, thinking is not only uh, a sort of normal human characteristic, a normal human frailty. And you say, well, is that happening with the current COVID policy stuff? Um, Especially in countries like New Zealand, where we tend to have gone um, harder and longer, and we're very much down a a particular way of thinking, then you'd say, well, it's probably not just likely, it's inevitable. Um, And so I've been really saying that for a start, that both our, our scientists who have commentary on this are in their own thinking traps. And that's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and our politicians are in their own thinking traps of not changing their mind, and that's normal. And so, I'd say we should shouldn't not we should accept this. That's normal, but we shouldn't accept it as being um, the end of the story. And, mm. and so, the scientific method as it exists in society would mean that you start with something, an idea, um, and people come up with counter ideas. And then those be tested with data, and neither idea might be right, but you might be able to advance the field, or you might chuck out the old idea and include the new, or you might just say that new idea was stupid to start with and we'll keep going. That sort of hypothesis generation, uh, thesis, antithesis, and then new synthesis should be the way that I would hope that public policy and science work. And I think it's been lacking in this COVID thing over the last couple of years because a lot of people have said some different things and somehow the media in particular, it's mm-hmm. hard to watch mainstream media and take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you feel that way, but I certainly do. I think 100%. Uh, uh, because that lack of debate and the silencing of people who say something different um, in our own country, that uh, one source of truth from the government, there's no other sources. That, it's just fundamentally anti-science. Yeah, uh, and we should be continuously wanting to change our minds. And I, I think, in the context of of a virus that that can kill some people, and um, has clearly got the world in a panic, 
Um, there'd be never a more important time than for rigorous public debate. And I, other thing I feel about public health, of course, is because public health necessarily involves the public, mm. then then what people have to say themselves also counts. People might be wrong and might be right, but they, they're entitled to their opinion. And that's why I wrote this piece, um, COVID, why your opinion counts. Uh, and at one level, that was an, a, a call to people outside of just epidemiology and and some of the biological sciences to economists, to educators, to theologians, to psychologists, to sociologists, to historians, to everyone who has something to say about society or wants to say something about society, then I feel um, they've got a place in the sort of public health response to say that. So that's the first call. And the second call is to everyone else out there who's got an interest because science isn't limited to just random people with the medical library card anymore. Mm. It's actually open access. And I think there's pretty ample evidence over the course of history that lay people picking up science can actually have a considerable contribution. And to, to deny that is sort of weird. So I'm really for that. And I, and I think back to this whole, like I think it was the janitor at a Scottish university who was the first guy to pitch the idea of tectonic plates, yeah. randomly ridiculed. Um, you know, it's just how the whole planet works. Yeah, yeah. You know, Grant, you've you've said a few things that I'd just like to pick up on. I think the first one is you started out by saying, you know, if you you're just over COVID, then you know, switch off. Um, however, like I think by switching off, we then uh, accept the default sort of what's going on, you know. And I and I. I understand that COVID fatigue because who doesn't have it? And it does make it difficult to engage sort of this late in the game, yet it's almost more important now because we're shifting from just sort of individual implications to us at that sort of societal level and how do we live as a society and and um, with the vaccine mandates and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's difficult to remain engaged in this when you've got, uh, when we're this far in, I, I don't know, I feel. And then of course, you're, you're absolutely right. I was reading your piece and that you you talk about you know these people outside of science they're the ones that sort of bring a new new and different perspective based on the fact that and I think about nutrition in that is that they may not necessarily have blinkers on in one perspective and learnt one way uh, and so therefore they're much more open-minded about the possibilities I suppose. Yeah well it's a good example is Cliff Harvey who's a friend and colleague of both of ours I'm thinking how long he was out in the cold with us just going at lunatic, <laughs> lunatic fringe. <laughs> yeah. um, and he's actually, you know, really an expert we we possibly both default to on a whole bunch of nutrition things. And um, yeah, first of all, now he's really well qualified to talk about that. But actually, he's he sat out there by himself being right for mm. decades. Yeah. Yeah. And like when we discussed this back in September 2020 briefly, you know, the focus in the COVID sort of space, what what there were like seemingly tumbleweeds on was actually the importance of individual health. And yeah. to talk about metabolic health was almost seen as sort of a privilege and something that um, people didn't have equal access to. So, so to have a discussion about what you could do to help improve your health was almost um, a lot of people were pushing back on that. Whereas it's much bigger now than, well, no, it is still about individual health. But as I said, it's much more how we live as a society. So can you just sort of talk to us about vaccine mandates and your views on the vaccine mandates? Yeah. Oh, well, let's just talk about metabolic health quickly because I think oh, yes. just needs, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's still a topic that hasn't been discussed openly in, uh, by governments and policymakers, let alone invested in. Um, and the sad thing is that the majority of our morbidity and mortality, uh, well, it's premature mortality is still due to chronic disease and it's still mm. overwhelmingly due to poor diet, low activity, poor sleep and lack of social connection. And those things are all important factors in, in viral resilience, not just viral resilience, but also um, the magnitude of the effectiveness of uh, any uh, treatment that you're going to get, both prophylactic through through you know various things, uh, including nutrients or uh, vaccines or um, if you get a virus like COVID in the second place. So, I mean, I just, in this country, we spent $60 billion on COVID. Um, our annual health budget is for the whole health system is $20 billion. Oh. Just imagine if we'd spent even 10% of that yeah. um, over the last couple of years on 
um, preventive medicine, we would have saved a lot of lives. Um, we'd be better off as a society um, and uh, would be more resilient to any viral things going forward as well. So like that's, I just can't believe that's not still a topic. I've, I've just said so much about it. People who are already in this space, I mean, we all agree with that and we know that and that's our daily lives, but for us to translate that into the broader society, which requires like actual public health investment, there's just no money. You and I know we want to go and do a diet program with someone and they, they go, how much is that going to cost? And you're like 200 bucks and they're like, oh no, not really worth it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll spend that on, you know, we'll spend $12,000 a day on ICU. Yeah, now, so, so what is it, Grant? What What's your thoughts on why this has absolutely been like, absolute silence from people who could actually make some decisions in and around accessing vitamin D or making decisions around the messaging around health? Like, have you had any thoughts on why uh, this well, is? I mean, mine's a little bit conspiratorial, so I'm not sure if there's any accuracy in that, but I sort of Sorry. feel like, um, you know, you're going to die with a virus or hospitalised. It's, it's sort of seems accidental and unfair and it happens acutely. Mm. Whereas, as we know, chronic disease is chronic disease because it happens from a a lifetime of uh, of poor behaviour, albeit in a in a pathological environment. So I'm not really blaming that individual level. Australian societies was a concern, but you know they're just different things. Like you're not bleeding out on the street when you develop insulin resistance and then mm. uh, pre-diabetes. So I think you know they're just not seen, uh, and it's just not acute enough. So that so that, I think that's the first thing and. Um, the more conspiratorial thing I told you was coming is I, I just don't think there's a pharmacy aspect to much of this yeah. um, in the same way there is for, for the, the current situation. So you know, the investment in chronic disease has been sort of underwhelming, really. Yeah, because I've certainly um, I've had conversations with Professor Julia Rutledge and other colleagues have just have seen, you know, quite, like they've put messages out there that are easy to access at that, you know, that's higher sort of ministry level and that's just, it's gone nowhere, basically. Yeah, we've also been running a fear-based campaign, right, So, which doesn't really work very well. We'd never do such a thing in nutrition or, um, you know, we, you don't see us advertising for diet going, if you eat that shit, you're going to be fat and obese and disgusting and you're going to die, so stop it. Well, no, yeah. Who would do that? That's just yeah, stupid, yeah. right? Yeah, that is ineffective. It will create resistance against the people you're trying to help and that sort of thing. So I think the fear campaign around COVID is really sort of necessarily excludes the stuff we're doing because everyone's just focusing on death and destruction from one thing. Um, you're in that fight or flight mode, and your sort of ability to think more critically is shut down. Yeah, I, I, I know both my parents and my in-laws watch the nightly news. Mm. I mean, you have to sort of intervene on their behalf and I mean the what they come up with on the basis of watching that you can't blame them is is, is astonishing yeah their, their fear and dread and behavior do you have any thoughts around the modeling that we see out there in the New Zealand Herald and I just can't believe the numbers that they come up with like this first they call it a, like an outbreak of like 20 yeah. which is yeah. you know our, our numbers are lower and I know they're they're likely to you know um, get bigger, but I'm looking at reports of twenty to thirty thousand cases a day. Yeah, well, you could get that, but I mean, what's a case? You know, so it's like a, a case. Well, first of all, take a step back in time and modelling, and you just go, well, your track record so far, guys, is appalling. How can anyone mm -hmm. take you seriously? Um, from the initial uh, infection fatality rates, you know, being in the four, five, six percent, and you know, actually turning out to be 0.2 percent. Yeah, uh, you know, like there's a massive difference. And the, the policy that initially led to um, hasn't really been abandoned. So the initial modelling was just wrong, never recovered from it. But you're right. Uh, at the moment, I'm seeing these different cases and case numbers. Um, I mean, usually in medicine, a case is defined as someone who's sick and mm. presents at the hospital. A case is not someone with asymptomatic or no trace of a disease at all, even if they've, they test for the virus. People get those all the time. So that's another whole issue. Yeah, I just saw one today with the sort of estimating that half of we've got 93% double vaccination rate yes they're estimating that half of the omicron cases will be from unvaccinated people right. um, which is hard to imagine given there's really very little difference in transmissibility if any between vaccinated and not vaccinated um, so i can't see why there wouldn't be 93% of the people who have omicron would be people who are not vac who are vaccinated and the other 7% or 6% would be from the others. So you just end up with these astonishing differences. I'll tell you another little story about that is 
a while back, um, Danny, who's my 11 year old, we were, um, we were listening to some news for some reason. And, and, uh, oh, that was when they came on, um, Hendy came on, uh, uh, the government briefings and said, oh, we're expecting 7,000 deaths from mm. this or, or 12,000 or whatever it was. Um, me and Danny, the 11 year old, we went through the statistics just, um, on, on common sense and logic. And we go, well, what's a similar sized country to New Zealand, um, mm. where they applied no such rules. So we looked up Sweden, looked at their death rates per million people. And, and even if we were as bad as Sweden was with no vaccine, no, uh, interventions, hardly at all, um, we still wouldn't have got there. Yeah. So, so how, how did you work that out? Yeah, do you know, um, interesting, I um, was listening to a podcast this morning, Peter Atia's latest one on the, the COVID um, yeah. situation, and they, were, they discussed Sweden in their podcast and how, you know, initially people sort of just stepped back and looked and went, okay, so Sweden has very few restrictions, some very little um, school closures. They just sort of, you know, they, they might have like put in some social distancing and stuff at some sort of level, but nothing to the extent of a lot of other countries. And actually a year, so whilst their initial mortality rate appeared higher, after a year, it was no different. Yeah. Yeah, so a really good podcast, that one, um, the last one for Peter Tier with the, um, there's three others on there, and I, I really recommend that if you want to get into more of those um, details. You did a really good job of that, but you did right. So, so yeah, anyway, back to the modelers. So yeah, it's just like if your modelling ends up being sort of some fragile extension of your own ego um, through your own dissonance, then good luck with that. Mm. And um, the, but what's scary is the extent to which uh, you can get it so wrong and not be accountable for it. Uh, yeah. you know, we see things at the moment. Well, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, we're 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 very we're very convinced straight away of the efficacy of vaccines and boosters on Omicron, this that and the other thing. But but it's too early to say what the fatality rate is. So you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Um, either you don't know about both, or you do know about both because they're obviously desperately interlinked. You can't yeah. know one without the other. Yeah. And so there's a sort of bias on that side as well. Grant, can I just um, ask you on the transmission piece? And Because I found this really interesting. So the podcast before, and it sounds like I only get my one source of truth is Peter Atia. That's actually not true. <laughs> but he does, a very, he does a very good job of sort of distilling the information along with people yeah. who are very vocal where they feel there is misinformation. So I don't feel yeah. it's, I mean, they're certainly not conspiracy theorists. They're almost the opposite. But, you know, they talked. So up until listening to that, I was under the impression that when I get back vaccinated and I'm double vaccinated that mm -hmm. I'm um, helping reduce transmission to other more vulnerable people what they sort of outlined and as you mentioned in your your essay that's not necessarily the case yeah I think there may be some small effects but I think because of the the and people point to biological mechanism going well the viral loads the same and all that sort of stuff um, and that may be the case but I think there's there's possibly some evidence that that transmission is reduced initially um, in some uh, small way. And mm. so the question is, is it worth, first, we'll get to the mandates in a second, is it worth mandating people that they can't participate in society for that small effect? Um, and then secondly, because of the waning of the vaccine, which is really new information, I think of sort of November last year, it's like, oh, this really wears off after only a, um, a few to several months, depending mm. on who you are, um, the most vulnerable being the more susceptible to more, more rapid waning. And so you go, well, when it's waned, there's essentially no reason to think there's any difference, and I don't think that pans out in in, in population data. So I think that's probably a thing about transmissibility, and because that that lets us get onto the waning, right? So yeah, um, I, I think I agree with the tears thing, and I well, actually wrote that before I heard this thing. Is that um, I'm not against mandating something um, if there's very little harm from the mandate, mm -hmm. unless those harms are trivial compared to the ones that you're avoiding. Um, say that some black plague does break out and it kills like Ebola, 50% of people who get it. Mm. Um, and um, it's highly transmissible. And if you're vaccinated, you're not going to catch it and you're not transmissible. Well, should actually, I'm all for that, frankly. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to catch something where I've got half a chance of living yeah. um, or, or dying. And, and if there's an effective treatment that, that does that, let's, let's actually um, mandate that because I think that gets, you know, the, it's sufficiently massive that we could actually consider doing that uh and so i'd be all for that uh in the, in the right way mm. um but you want to understand that fairly clearly like you're not all of a sudden you're not going to die of something else or something but to the extent that we're doing it at the moment so it's really predicated around this transmissibility mm. 
thing. So you'll exclude people from society. I feel really strongly about this excluding people from society. I think um, mainly because I'm seeing it um, yeah. with people I know, including my own family. I've had a lot of um, staff at my university reach out to me um, yeah. who will either lose their jobs or are currently just um, isolated at home um, and it'll be reviewed. And I'm coming up now because I'm mandated to have to make a decision um, which relates to my employment around getting a booster mm. vaccine, which I'm not convinced on yet with this Omicron thing. So uh, the, when you start to leave people out of society and um, my um, sons, I wrote about one of one of who my 11-year-old don't intend to get him vaccinated at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, my 18-year-old, who's just turned 19, um, was hospitalised mm. um, after an adverse event following his second Pfizer jab. Um, bizarrely, he was diagnosed with dehydration, which is really bizarre. Mm. Uh, had, I don't even know how they could have thought that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he received a text a couple of while ago going, don't worry, this is a minor event, and if, when you're having your booster, you should just take it lying down. Right. Um, he's never going to do a booster. There's yeah. nothing you can do to convince him to get a booster. Um, and if they mandate boosters where he is in the engineering department at the University of Auckland, then he'll be excluded from university. Yeah. Um, and my other son, Sam, who's a bit older, was with him at the time and had one shot already. I don't think he's going to do any more. And so um, he can't currently go on to a, his university campus. Um, mm. He can't get a haircut. He can't go to the movies. He can't go to a restaurant or a cafe. Neither can his partner. Um, his partner was actually recently refused medical treatment because mm. she was unvaccinated. And those things are just, you know, when it's your family, you're just going, um, this just seems wrong. And they've got reasons, legitimate reasons, that they've decided to forego those medical procedures. So it really breaks my heart to see that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. No. I'm just going, hey. Your son that had that adverse reaction, was that your first exposure to, like, an adverse reaction there and then? Like, your first kind of, oh, shoot, actually, this is a bigger deal than what I potentially thought it was? Well, well, firsthand in the sense that I'd seen it, but I'd been reading about things, but um, also um, had other, you know, one or two degree separation friends who had had adverse events as well. But obviously, if it's not your family, it doesn't quite affect you in the same way. So, yeah, um, yeah that was definitely um, a bit shocking. I mean, the thing is that I was actually, I thought it was just incumbent on me to do so. I, I was sending my son's literature to read yeah. um, scientific papers about the risks of adverse events for teenage boys versus that and saying, well, you know, obviously there's potential benefit, there's also potential harm. You're old enough to make your own decision. You, you make it yourself, mm-hmm. which I think is probably responsible parenting as so far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, yeah. And unfortunately for Jackson, he for his job, he was mandated um, mm-hmm. to do it. So, you know, he, he needed his summer job, surf life saving. Yeah, which, by the way, subsequently risks his life for. Uh, and yes. has saved people this summer, um, mm. you know, without thought to their vaccination status or anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, I thought that sort of coercion was a bit um, unfair yeah. in a functioning society. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting it, because if you don't have an adverse reaction and you don't see it in and around you, it's really easy to fall into that sort of, well, you know, what's the big deal? I just get a yeah. vaccine, I show my vaccine passport. I can go on and live and, and everyone, you know, it, it's everyone's choice. So if it's there, so the argument is, is that, you know, you have a choice, you can get the vaccine. If you choose not to, you know the consequence. And I hear that a lot, that, you know, you're aware of the consequence of not getting the vaccine. So what is actually, what's wrong with that argument? Well, what's wrong with it is that you're you're coerced into it. So I'll give you an example. I'll give a um, speech at an end of year school staff, primary school staff set up. Um, and there's a bunch of, it's sort of um, at the school, at least they're still separated into the guys and the girls, so I started with the guys. And most of the teachers are women at that school. So um, these guys were builders and stuff, and they were unvaccinated for whatever reason that were. But it was interesting that they said, oh, you know, so-and-so, my partner, she's vaccinated only um, to keep her job. She wouldn't have otherwise have got it. So I think that's coercion into a medical procedure and um, we decided as a society quite a while back that we'd have a bill of rights that prevented that sort of thing um, and one of the reasons we do that is because medical procedures always have um, risks of adverse events so if you take any medication surgeries then something can go wrong and it quite often does so I think 
in many countries, about 15% of deaths are thought to be because of medical misadventure. Mm-hmm. So um, that being the case, I think you really need to be able to consent to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that consent shouldn't take in, I don't think, when there's no one harms and no one benefits, but um, only you can balance that up. Actually, uh, here's a little thought experiment that I, I, and the listeners can do this as well. So you imagine, Mickey, I'm your treating physician. You turn up to me and you say, I'm saying, how's it going, Mickey? And you're going, well, I'm pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I go, Mickey, hey, look, um, I know you're pretty well, but um, there's this new treatment that's just come out. And these, uh, you take the blue pill here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not the red pill um, where you wake up. Take the blue pill and, and you're going to get an extra 10 years disability-free onto your life. Mm. You're interested in that, right? Yeah, amazing. Bring it on. So you're, like, you're thinking about taking the blue pill, right? Yeah. Um, but on your way out, I'm saying, oh, hang on. Actually, I probably should mention to you there's some side effects, Mickey. Mm. Um, and you're like, oh, what are they? And I go, oh, well, actually, yeah, one in four people that take this um, will drop dead on the spot. Oh, um, but should that not happen, then, then you'll get these extra 10 years. Right. Um, would that affect your decision? Oh, yeah. Like, and I am a risk-averse person. I would say mm. no thanks. Like, no yeah. Um, okay, but let's just imagine um, um, that you're my dad, mm-hmm. who's in his um, early to mid-80s, and dad's got, um, has had metastatic prostate cancer. He might make a different decision. Yeah. With those exact same odds. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing here, is that we'll all make different decisions with the exact same odds. Um, and then things, the thing is with the COVID, with the vaccine, harms and benefits, it's substantially, because the gradient, risk gradient is so steep um, and the adverse event profile seems inverse to that, so the, there's more adverse events with, say, a young males who are actually um, at the least at risk. And there seem to be, well, it's hard to tell about the adverse events with the real oldies because they're not collected well, but they've certainly got a higher risk of COVID death or hospitalisation. So every decision about that is going to mean a different thing to a different person. Um, I can't imagine why I want to vaccinate my 11-year-old um, uh, I know, and I can't imagine why anyone would want to mask a two-year-old. Oh, yeah, well, that, the whole masking is another whole story. We'll get onto that a bit later, yeah. eh? Because that's yeah, like yeah, another that's, whole discussion. Yeah. But yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, because there's always there's no there's no harm-free options for most of the things we do in society. Some, you know, you, you start doing more hip surgeries, well, some people will die. You start doing more colorectal examinations for bowel cancer, then some people you'll perforate their bowel and they bleed to death. Mm. Um, but you can also do some benefit. And so you're, you're constantly weighing up harm versus benefit. You do breast, breast cancer screening where you might catch more um, breast cancers and um, save people from death of that, but then you'll expose a whole bunch of people to false positives and they'll get treatment they didn't need um, yeah. that may cause some harm um, and certainly cause some anxiety. Uh, so it's always a balance about what we want to do. And the only person that can make that decision about that balance is you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, so people will think about that. Another more real example, which is sort of slightly funnier in many ways and less in some other ways, uh, I do this with my lifestyle nutrition class. We've been talking about cancer and um, I'm slightly out of my field here when I start to talk BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, but whatever that BRCA gene is, that um, gives you about a 30% chance of developing breast cancer. So you discover you've got the, that gene mm. um, as a younger woman. And so you've got, now, you've, now, you've, now you've got a 30% chance versus, say, 3% chance of developing breast cancer. Um, and if you've, one of, if you've developed that breast cancer, you've got a 30% chance of dying from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can mitigate that with a double mastectomy as a preventive measure. Mm. And um, the question is, would you do that? And it's never mandated. That's a decision that's made by women at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like when I asked the class, they, the girls or the young woman in my class are roughly divided on what they would do. Interesting. Which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, anyway, since we've got men there as well, most of them don't have breasts, then we, we make up a hypothetical about a testicular cancer gene, Yeah. Um, which so far as I know doesn't actually exist in the same way the BRCA2 one does, but we say like you've got the uh, testy one and testy two gene, and um, you've got a 30% chance of developing uh, testicular cancer, of which 30% of you will die. Um, would you be uh, willing to undergo a double tisectomy? <laughs> and uh, you get like a, a 100% negative, like everyone's like, nah, not going to do it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, then, then a few of them think about it for a while. Yeah. And they're all like, nah, nah, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. Um, and then someone always puts up their hand and goes, oh, yeah, you might, you might consider it if you were like old 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They go, oh, well, like if you're over 40 or something, your life's pretty much over. So. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that I always find that so classically hilarious when I'm in there with students and they talk about old people and old people literally are people over 40. Yeah, exactly. Jesus. And I was like, well, I'm 53. It's like stunned silence. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again you can see the just different why people make decisions about those sorts of things and they're important ones and i think the vaccine falls into that yeah for sure. yeah no and you mention it in your piece as well and it's this whole like, idea of nuance like yeah. a mandate doesn't allow for that and the yeah. idea that you treat a 79 year old diabetic overweight uh, woman the same as you do a 15 year old basketball player yeah. You know, like it's a male basketball player. It's just, it should be different. So it just yeah. makes no sense that you just mandate across the board without giving any sort of um, nuance or any sort of opportunity to have that individual sort of decision. Yeah, I think the wheels have fallen off that argument as far as transmissibility are concerned. So I think we should be actively calling for that. Um, well, you I'll... say that, but do people know, like do people up there know that? Because they keep talking like it's still an issue. Do it for the team yeah. of 5 million. Do it for your whanau. Do it, you know. <laughs> and, and I've got to say, I over the course of the last six months, and this isn't the first time on the podcast I've said this, I really hate that language. They have taken our sort of, you know, our mentality around sports competition and they've just yeah. like layered that onto their campaign for yeah, um, everything COVID-related uh, uh, and uh, turns yeah. me right off. Well, I think the other thing that, about that is exactly what you're saying, right? As, as soon as you... Uh, I don't know if there's any truth in this, but it certainly makes me feel that way. And I think it creates people who were sitting on the fence to be more radicalised in their opinions. So like you you say, well, you're excluded from society now. You're not just sitting in the middle there going, well, I was thinking about this. You're now yeah. going, well, actually, screw you. Um, yeah, yeah. You guys are a bunch of idiots. And what they're saying about you um, at the far right of the spectrum is is possibly true. And I think that then you get this sort of divisive situation. So, so then... No one's got any nuance anymore because everyone's down the track of going, well, you guys are idiots. I mean, in town I am, people will people make, um, because Jacinda Ardern's got a, a holiday place here, um, mm. you know, people make signs and they put them in front of their house and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of things. So uh, and they probably wouldn't have ordinarily have done that if they hadn't been sort of psychologically pushed into that division. It's sort of it's what's challenging for people who feel uneasy and a bit uncom- and uncomfortable by what's going on, which is, you know, I've talked to a lot of friends in and around this over the last few months is with the mandates and the boosters and feeling just unsettled and uncomfortable but unable to sort of articulate what it is. And we're, we're normal people. We're not radicalists. We're not... Um, zealots or, or anything like that whereas yeah. you've quite eloquently sort of outlined what some of our concerns are which is brilliant but the problem is is that as soon as you start questioning what's going on you are labeled as one of these zealots you're put in that brian tamaki sort of space and see yeah, listen exactly. to me talk so about brian tamaki you know? I, 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 yeah i'd like to use my democratic right to march to be perfectly honest like think yeah um well especially any uni students listen to this i mean you should be marching on something like, like that's the yeah. thing that you need to, you know, you went to Otago, you'd match, you're going to match. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't agree with this. I mean, you don't even know what it is, you're going to match, which is probably <laughs> not the best. But, but yeah, like, like, but unfortunately for me, like if I go and do that and then the media get hold of it, it'll just be a freaking disaster, yeah. um, which is a bit gutless. So my, my objections have been a bit softer. And I've been, interestingly, I've got flame from both sides for saying this, which is my, my prepared speech for when I'm asked for a vaccine passport. Yeah, no, go on. Like, like, talk us through that because I did read it, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. I'd love to hear you say it. Oh, I just like, feel like complicity with something you think's absolutely wrong at the fundamental mm. level is is sort of partially endorsing it. Yeah. Um, so I have this prepared speech when I get asked for my vaccine passport. Now, the fact that I even show my vaccine passport and go to places that ask for it, people have said, well, that shows that you're partially complicit, which is possibly true. Are you hypocritical? Uh, is that what people are saying? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, but the speech is this, right? So I get asked for my vaccine pass and I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, while I'm getting that ready, that's really good that you've asked me that, but um, I'm going to give you a short speech. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to know what they're thinking because they've got their mask on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I go, I'm going, so the speech goes something like this. It's like, you're engaging in, uh, and it's a bit of a wank, so just be with it. <laughs> you're engaging in an unsustainable strategy to meet an unobtainable goal. I find what you're doing to be divisive not in line with the New Zealand uh, Bill of Rights, and I can't endorse it, um, and I do know that you're just doing your job. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got that last, 
Yeah, yeah. And actually, you using having that last sentence on, I think, is is that sort of acknowledgement that they're just sort of doing what they feel that what they basic. If I say have to do, it's either that or lose their job. Yeah. So yeah. So I sort of get that part of it, but. Anyway, so I, I, I sort of know that the responses are about one third, one third. About a third of people will just pull down their mask and go, oh, yeah, 100%, it's all bullshit. Um, yeah. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, it was interesting. <laughs> the last last month we were in, oh, no, this month actually, we were down West Coast doing the Paparoa Trail, and um, I walk into Blackball and – you know, at the time you mandated to wear masks in shops and stuff like that, and I walk in and they're not wearing masks, and yeah. I'm like, oh, do I? And they're like, nah, don't even worry, you know? So yeah. it depends on sort of your exposure, where you're at, what, what yeah, yeah. you know, your actual, um, what your attitude is towards it. But it is interesting on, you know, what people are made to do. People are made to, um, they, 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 re- they require you to show your vaccine mandate. Like the Lone Star and New Lynn, have, like the owners have just stepped down and they've been fined $24,000 because they've yeah. allowed their unvaccinated workers to work and they haven't been following the government mandate mandates and I just am reading this and I just feel I feel so upset for those owners who are trying to support their workers who yeah. have, but of course by doing so they are going against what is now sort of policy and law and we, as a society we're trying to get back on our feet we're trying to help businesses do that get back on their feet yet the government is not doing that at all with these types of policies yeah so those people are um, pretty courageous taking that stand because they're going to suffer at the hands of bureaucracy, which they're going to. I didn't see their speech, and I you know, agree with a lot of the stuff that they said. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're right. So um, potentially they won't be able to pay the fine because they've already lost all their money from the yeah. last two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the other third of people go, another third of people just go, oh, yeah, look at you, like, yeah, here we go, roll your eyes. <laughs> um, and a third of people just you know, actually launch back at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess that sort of sees there's two thirds of people that are either in bug lunch or, or um, actively in support of it, which is probably about right. Yeah, um, and actually, and ambivalent is what people sort of describe, like the chilled Kiwi as sort of anyway. It's like yeah, whatever, you know, like yeah. that's very yeah. key, very Kiwi yeah. anyway. Yeah, but this idea of excluding people on society on the basis of this, I think, is just yeah, clearly so wrong. It's not even it's not it's not even a thing. So that's I do feel pretty strongly about that. Yeah, um, I hope we do look back on this with some degree of shame although I think with what we opened this podcast with the idea of dissonance and that sort of thing that that's possibly never going to happen yeah yeah it's interesting and and the sort of pushback argument is and again I mean I have uh I don't know you know people like to compare it to other times in history when there have been two tiers of uh people two sort of classes of people is how they've sort of described it and then um there's sort of shock and horror at being compared to you know other yeah, previous Jews or something times. Nazi Germany yeah um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and well, that just, I mean, it's a whole level we, of we arrive at the same situation through completely different means right mm. um but we have ended up with two different classes of people mm. um so two, two different means grant can we talk about the masks what is your yeah, understanding about masks um only because my 11 year old is gonna have to go to school and wear a mask mm. um well i mean good luck with that for a start there's no way yeah um i just i can't see how they're going to enforce that maybe they will but the question is and i think you can study this is wearing masks prevent you from either catching or transmitting a covid virus or or does it just reduce the degree of transmission across a population so there's a more even distribution of people getting it doesn't somehow overwhelm the health system which by the way is a bit of a funny argument because the health system's been overwhelmed for decades yeah um no one seemed to be freaking out about that yeah Um, we don't even have a proper mental health system in this country so there's only a small percentage of people with mental health problems that you know and they're the hard end who end up as inpatients with psychosis and bipolar and stuff that end up getting care and that care is not very good Mm. um for mild or moderate there's really no system at all so I haven't seemed to be too worried about that. So, 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 you know, potentially these masks, sort of low cost, doesn't hurt you too much, bit of a pain in the ass wearing them, but it's going to save a lot of lives and um, prevent widespread transmission of something pretty deadly. Then you probably think about that. Um, and then you go, well, you could probably study that, right? Because, mm. you know, there's, there's ideas that, well, you know, on a cloth mask, say that there's 200 microns between fibers and, and a virus might be one micron. So you, mm. know, you look at that and you go, well, is it sort of like trying to stop mosquitoes coming into your bedroom by putting a chain link fence up over your window? Mm. Uh, it's not really going to work. 
but then it's like, well, I know it just sort of stops the, doesn't stop them, but just stops it going so far. And I, I could sort of see how that might be a thing. It could be a thing. Um, and then you could do trials, right? You see, like that Bangladeshi trial was interesting. Yeah. They gave different villages cluster randomized trial where they gave them uh, cloth masks or these surgical masks. And actually, that, that study's been pretty widely debated, right? So initially, it shows a small effect in favor of the surgical masks over um, no masks, and the cloth masks didn't really do anything. And subsequent reanalyses have shown that there's hardly an effect of it all. Mm. Um, so the question, again, is, is there harm? Are there possible harms which lessen the effect? Uh, I think that um, adverse events from mask wearing are probably much less than vaccine because I um, haven't heard of people dying from their mask use or anything like that. But mm. um, just seems like a, there'll certainly be pollution. Um, mm. Fish will probably die, or turtles, or something, mm-hmm. uh, or marine mammals, because of the billions that are going into the ocean and that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, is is it, is it worth it if it hardly does anything? Is it the lesser of all the evils? So basically, this weird one anyway. And yeah, I really can't be bothered, but I do when I'm required. Um, yeah, it, it, it's yeah. interesting. My my whole thing around Mars. So after watching uh, up to season three of Handmaid's Tale. Um, I had a had a complete visceral reaction to masks now, and I yeah. they're actually like I really rally against them, and I shouldn't, but yeah. I do. Um, yeah. And as I understand it, the most effective masks, which are the what the N95, N95 is it? And K, and, yeah, 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 ninety five, ninety four, or whatever, are ones which we don't actually have access to anyway. And then the most uh, the, the benefit is if people feel afraid of the virus, they wear them, they are able to protect themselves more. And if people are immune compromised, if they wear them, they're, then they're better protected. But for your mm-hmm. general person who doesn't actually have access to those masks and have something of a lesser quality that might not even be fitted properly anyway, yeah. scant sort of you know difference between yeah. masks and so masks. So what's the point of, yeah. of doing all that and polluting the planet and that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree with that, Yeah, um, more or less. I think, I think the one I'd probably object to, because I just don't think it's feasible as kids. I mean, honestly, yeah. has anyone been to a primary school? No, yeah. it's not going to happen. Actually, um, yeah, a lot of parents have pushed back. Yeah, totally on on the you know like when uh, when it was in the media, you know, kids under two or kids over two need a mask. A lot of parents were like, "Has this guy not got kids? Like, does he have any idea how like that would just be impossible?" Um, yeah. And of course, I don't know. I just just don't. I I have this visceral reaction when I see a kid in a mask as well. Like, yeah. the, it just feels like. It's some additional separation, I suppose, in society and, you know, this ability to feel connected to your community members and, and things like that. I mean, I guess I just have a, um, uh, I feel like the psychological sort of uh, ramifications, we don't, well, we don't know yeah. what they are, but. Can, can yeah. I make a confession to you about a, a poor behaviour that I was engaging in at one stage? Oh, mate, you go on, do it. So um, this is back in Auckland and the last like full lockdown, and a lot of people were just getting around outside, like I'd walk around or run around Lake Papuki in the morning or. Yeah. Go on the beach, or I'd see people driving past in cars, and they'd all have their masks on. Um, and unfortunately, what I ended up doing, because I thought it was like, it's not coming in contact with people, you're outside. Um, yeah. I decided that what I would do, just don't hold this against me as a, my character, but when they walk p- past me, well, actually, there's a preceding event. Yeah. Um, Louise and I are running up Husme Road in Takapuna, and um, you know, at seven in the morning, we just finished running around the lake and this guy came past on his bike and veered closer to us with his mask on and he stopped and he yells out at us, Spreaders! Oh, Spreaders! my God. And we oh, were my like, God. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I started um, quietly saying back, every person who walked past me like that, I would say, zombie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> zombie. <See? laughs> uh, and, and, but then... Um, Did Louise tell you off? They always told me off. I mean, I had to stop after a few days, but um, that was my thing. <laughs> yeah, it was your sort of like stance at the time. But of course, you've well, now. I've, had, I've been, had this person yelling spreader at me because I was just yeah. going for a run. Yeah. Um, I was like, well, that's a bit weird. And that's and and this is the thing which which makes me feel worst of all is just that divisive nature of yeah. sort of where we are at now. I suppose with yeah. how everyone feels about everything that's going on. Like, Yes, we all need to have an opinion and do have an opinion. We're just all a little bit. I think a lot of people are afraid to voice it for the, you know, the blowback that they'll get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think 
Um, and I've tried to do this. I discriminate strongly between just being a citizen society with a sense of humour, and mm. yeah, you know, the zombie and stuff falls into that category because it's just being a dick. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not my scientific point of view. I'm just being a dick. Yeah, you know, and, you're self-aware and, at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there was a time when you accused me of having low, in the nicest possible way. You said something on social media about that. Um, what, did, yeah. what was that again? Oh, I don't know which which time, Grant. Oh, years ago, like a decade ago. You were like, oh yeah, uh, something. I can't remember what it was about that. Um, and, and you know, a scientific opinion. So I think on the you know the public health side of things with the mandates, I think mm. yeah, you know, there's 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 evidence that you're going to do more harm. Yeah. Um, or at least you haven't considered those harms in any conceivable way. And not to do so is negligent because the conservative approach is to not shift without that evidence. Um, so just people are listening here, yeah, just take, into, t- take those differences into account with me because, you know, I, um, like anyone, I'm just a person in society um, yeah. going about my life as, as well as trying to have a view on public health matters. I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes at a barbecue and someone's put out like their not low carb cheesecake with their, you know, uh, uh, chocolate bar, chocolate fish stuck in the top, and I'm just like, yeah, and I have like three helpings. It's like, you know, yeah. obviously that's, you know, not a healthy thing to do, and it's against everything that I teach and talk about all the time, but it, you know, happens from time to time. Yeah. So, Grant, yeah. from your perspective, but actually from everyone's perspective, we see a couple of prominent people in the media discussing you know, what's going on. So you've got the epidemiologists, our mate Rod. And did you think it was ironic, actually, that he then became a talking head for what was going on? Just, I, I just was like, <laughs> yeah, really? Is it this guy? Yeah, yeah, quite, Margarine quite, quite man? Funny, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're entitled to their opinion, but um, yeah. they're also entitled to to um, deal with the blowback that happens from everyone. Mm. Um, I don't think, you know, commenting on someone's hair colour or their weight or something, so I, yeah, that's not, I don't think that's fair. No. Um, but to be criticised for your opinion, going that modelling's wrong, it seems like rubbish to me. How could that possibly happen? Um, it's open slather. So I think that's the sort of this whole academic freedom thing of academics having their say and in fields that they have some knowledge in. That's mm. absolutely fair enough. But don't don't run off to your university and say, "Oh, woe is me." Yeah. Um, you know, so far as I know, it's it, in my contract. It's actually uh, it, it's specific about this critic and conscience in society. It's also yeah. very specific and in the performance-based research funding portfolios that we all have to put in as academics, like you actually have to comment on your contribution to the critical consciousness of society. Like they, mm. they mark you on it. So, mm. so it actually is a part of your job. Yeah. Um, so, and if you're in these fields, then you should expect the public to be involved and you should, should, should expect sort of open slather blowback. I think that's fair enough. Um, so, you know, get up for it. And, and who, who's missing from this voice? Like, you know, who else do we need to hear about in terms of the, you know, the implications of these vaccine mandates from people like you in public health or other areas? Who else oh, do we need to hear from? I think from? education is woefully absent. Educators, yeah. professional educators, teachers, principals, um, the academics who teach education. Yeah. Come on, guys. You're the voice of reason in our teaching our young people from preschool all the way through to high school. Uh, we we need to hear from, I think, sociologists. Like sociology is the study of how societies operate. Mm-hmm. Um, them with historians because history repeats. Yeah. Uh, psychologists around well-being. Um, in fact, I've had a couple of people who are psychologists reach out recently mm. um, and say they'd like to say more. But in fact, they're aware of someone who the psychologist board has been quite transparent in saying if you comment on this publicly, it'll be beyond your brief and um, you'll be censured. And that actually has happened to someone. So I think many of the psychologists are feeling scared about that. And, and I, I think that sort of sort of woe, uh, pours woe on the psychologist registration board in New Zealand because that, that's anti-scientific. Yeah. Um, for psychologists not to comment on mental health and well-being at this time um, in terms of policy around the stuff is, is astonishingly poor. So come on, psychologist board, get yeah. your shit together. Yeah, yeah. And what about just the general public? Like, as I said, there are a bunch of people that I know who are nothing to do with health, education, psychology. They're just, they're citizens and they've got concerns, yet they're not sure how to voice them in a way that is able to delineate them from the zealots. Like, do you have any advice for people like that? Play the issue, not the person. I think that's the first most obvious thing because it's very easy to roll that up into it and then I think you automatically discredit yourself. And so, you know, when they start going the Prime Minister and going Cindy, Cindy, Cindy is a derogatory oh, term. Yes. As, as much as you might not like the Prime Minister, that's just not good enough. You can't have a rational debate when you're chucking that stuff or they have a go at Susie Wiles about all of her 
um, you know, physical characteristics. Like you can't yeah. do that. So it's like that's out off the table. You can't do that. Oh my god! Um, and I did just say something about Rod Jackson and margarine. So I need to move remove that from my. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I, yeah, I, but I understand. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but that was issue related. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so that, that that's a thing. Mm. Um, and to speak coherently, enough people, and and also make your democracy like that's my little short speeches. I just feel like I'm exercising my democratic right to say something. Yeah. Um, just do it. I feel like there needs to be some sort of groundswell of, you know, you know, do things like petitions actually make a difference? Does does stuff like marching and protesting do they actually make a difference? Have they historically in New Zealand where have they made a difference? Yeah, well, we're, we've been most proud of um, the times that our people rode their boat out or sailed their Optimus dinghy out to. Um, stop a nuclear submarine coming into the harbour. I mean, that was a bit silly because it like, surfaced in front of you and it's got missiles. But it worked. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the protests with the uh, Springbok tours and the yes. you know effect we had worldwide on apartheid, that sort of thing. Like, we should be incredibly proud of those. Yeah, yeah. Actually, as a tangent, my dad was embroiled in the 1980 Springbok protests, not because he was protesting, but he was – he had parked our V-Dub van after work in and around, I think it was Murray, down Murray Place, where a protest was taking part and he'd locked his keys in the car and so he got a crowbar out. <laughs> he got a crowbar from somewhere to take to, to get the keys out of his car. It wasn't a good idea in the middle of a protest, but uh, a peaceful protest um, against this, the, uh, you know, apartheid. Yeah, but anyway. Classic. Yeah, so we've, yeah. we've got a history of that, so it should carry mm. on. Yeah. All right. Awesome, Grant. So obviously people can, you know, I've seen a lot of the comments on Facebook and, and, a, and a large supportive audience, but not everyone. Like yeah. what kind of uh, response have you had? Yeah, like sort of 90% supportive, 10% not. So yep. I don't know what you, what, do you, what do you make of that? How do you it's judge a complete it? echo chamber, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like I, I really appreciate that you took the time to put your thoughts down on paper because like I say like I mean you've been a complete mentor to me in the nutrition space and I feel like this has been um it, it's almost requires someone to sort of step up and go right I'm going to be the first of first person sort of outside of the zealots to actually take a stand against something which we which a large part of us not all of us there's loads of people that support vaccine mandates obviously but there are loads yeah. of people that don't and yeah. we sort of need a, a little bit of a voice in there to sort of help us find our own voices so thank yeah, you yeah I, I wrote that I wrote another piece just before Christmas that got like a million views across some different platforms around just around mandates yeah um, yes, but it was only, I was only just sitting there I realized the next day that teachers weren't coming back to school and we in my area we've got eight midwives and there's only two still employed and a baby died the other day because like a midwifery care sure. you know it's like oh gosh yeah. So, yeah yeah um where can we find you grant yeah profgrant.com or just profgrant scopefield on facebook Awesome. I have got an Instagram account, but I notice I've only posted three things. Yeah, and I keep tagging you, and and you'll keep missing them. But yeah, no, yeah, no, I, was, I was sort of reserving that from what, sort of looking at the sports stuff. Um. <laughs> Grant, thanks so much for your time. Awesome, catch ya. See ya. Okay, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, I certainly enjoyed speaking to Grant, and as you would have heard, he's been a real mentor to me in a number of different areas over the years, so I really value what he has to say. And I know that many of you feel the same, so that's awesome. Next week on the podcast, it's super cool because I get to chat to someone I have listened to on the airwaves for what seems like forever. It is Tom Williams, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Park Run and former co-host of one of the best podcasts that have been out there which has just very recently retired itself Marathon Talk. Tom and I actually speak on the day after it was announced that Marathon Talk was going to be publishing its final episode. So we have a little bit of a conversation around that, but also talk about Parkrun and the importance of Parkrun, particularly at times like these of which I am also a massive fan of. So that is next week on the podcast. Until then, you can find me over on Facebook at Nikki Willardin Nutrition on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin or over on my website mickeywillardin.com where in addition to that recipe portal access you can also 
sign up to one of my meal plans that also brings with it a shopping list with a 28 day meal plan with all of the benefits described earlier or book a one-on-one consultation with me just head on over to mickeywillardin.com for that cool team really appreciate you being here have an awesome week and look forward to catching up next week see you later